Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. Brought to you by myself, Diana Bang, and Grace Hill. From fashion, beauty, and homeware, Diana and I will cover industry topics and shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. Grace, how are you? What's going on in the world? What's going on with you? Oh, I'm good. I'm currently in my flat in London. So I've escaped the Isle of Wight, otherwise known as Alcatraz, for the four months that I spent there. So now I'm enjoying the sunshine, although it's very warm in my flat with no AC. So no, it's I'm good. I'm just excited to yeah, to be to be back in the city. How about you? Well, I was considering now that gyms have opened to get back into the gym, but there was a recent research survey from List where they said that eco-active wear has increased recently during lockdown, which I was interested in seeing that relates back to Apple's pledge of being carbon neutral by 2030. So I'm wondering whether to start to invest in more eco-active wear right now. Yeah. I mean, well, I was guilty of trying some new active wear brands over lockdown. I bought myself some my first Lululemon leggings and I'm now a total convert. But um, I've had the same question with the gyms reopening because I was considering cancelling my membership. But since I've been back in London, I, I thought I would be better at doing my at-home workouts. And I've been absolutely terrible. So I do think I probably need that gym membership to motivate me. <laughs> but yeah, so, so what are we going to be talking about on today's episode? So today we've got a menswear expert from the industry joining us. So we'll be delving into the category to see how it's faring versus women's wear. So we're really excited to introduce our guest today because we have been working very closely together for the past couple of years. So on today's podcast, we have Randy Cousin, who is the VP of Brand Merchandising for Menswear at Tommy Hilfiger. He's going to be here expressing his own views. So hi, Randy. Welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you here. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. What can I say? It's summer in a pandemic, right? <laughs> yeah. How are things in New York? How are you handling the heat wave as well? Oh, my God. Well, you know, if you are a New Yorker, you are always used to the fact that we have some hot, steamy summers here. But usually we have an opportunity to escape and either come overseas or get away to the water. So I think we're all just kind of getting adjusted to our new normal. Um, yeah. you know, I, I might go to Target and get a blow-up swimming pool for my <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually going to my friend tonight. She has a paddling pool in her garden. So we're going to social distance and dip our toes in the water. <laughs> Lucky you. But I mean, listen, I think things in New York are, are finally getting to a stable place, but we have to just keep remaining vigilant, wear a mask and, and, and get through this. But we definitely will. New Yorkers are strong and tough. Yeah, exactly. Oh, amazing. I know. Well, we're battling a heat wave here in London, which is obviously not normal. Not We're not equipped for that with no a- AC, but hopefully we won't look too uh, sweaty by the end of this episode. Well, you guys are amazing and, and, wel- and welcome to my life. This is what we do. <laughs> amazing. So, Randy, we would love to hear about how you got into the fashion industry and kind of your previous roles. I have to admit, I did do some LinkedIn stalking. And uh, I noticed that we both started our careers in the same place. I hear you you started at ANF. I um, did start at ANF. Yeah. Former ANF are on the phone. Yes. We're, we're always everywhere. Everywhere, I know. All the merchants from ANF, they really spread wide. Yeah, you know, I always call fashion one of the best kept secrets. Obviously, everybody knows about fashion, but you know, 
growing up as a merchandiser in fashion, I never knew quite that this type of opportunity, or I think all of us kind of like when we started out, thought clothes magically appeared on a tea stand in a store. But yeah. little did I know that, that there was this amazing weird that was kind of looking out for me. I know I actually grew up in a fashion family. My mom has always had a love of fashion. They're from the South Mississippi. So you might hear my Southern accent come out a little bit in this call. But, you know, that love of fashion really, really kind of wore off on me. But you name it, you grew up in a Southern household. Even though I grew up in Ohio, we had all the Southern iconic things that you do. And whether it be like, you know, etiquette lessons or playing an instrument or playing sports, but fashion just is something that always kind of like we've had affinity for as a family and being able to grow up in that rich culture, specifically all of a sudden in the 80s and the 90s, was epic. You had fashion, you had art, you had music. Yeah. You know, I, I was an artist as a child and that kind of led its way to me growing up and in, in studying architecture and interior design in college. You know, I always had this desire to move to New York City and I happened to be at a job fair with a fraternity brother of mine and I hadn't found a job yet. I was like, okay, I'll probably just go to grad school. And so I put on my Navy suit and I was at a job fair and I had someone stop me and he said, you know, that's a pretty nice Navy suit for a kid your age. And I was like, well, I have a good tailor. And he laughed. <laughs> and that kind of led to me actually starting off my career. You know, I kind of took a leap and decided to take a year as a merchandising trainee for the May company, which became Macy's. And then, so I did that for a year. And then from there, Abercrombie recruited me to become a part of their training program. And I, I'm so thankful for those times because I think that I, I had an opportunity to work at Abercrombie in the days when we were printing money. And it was like, yeah. it, honestly, it, it, the opportunities were endless. But to also work for some of the great merchandisers of our past, like Mike Jeffries, you know, he really taught us to learn and think about fashion from the consumer element, 360, about sight, sound, smell, like really the, the art of the retail experience. So, and, and also how to drive a business, how to have great taste level with product, but also how to really learn how product is made. So even if you think of how product comes to fruition, even in the production space, we learned all of that, even how to negotiate product, how garments put together. And those are, those are just kind of fundamental skills that you don't lose. And I have to say, we, I had an opportunity to work with some of the great talent that came out of Abercrombie. We worked for some of the great iconic brands of today. And it's so great because we all keep in touch. Mm -hmm. If we don't see each other for years, when we get together, it's like no time was lost. So I, I'm really happy to be a part of that like eternal fraternity and sorority yes. at Abercrombie. And following my Abercrombie experience, I just always had this desire to work for one of the great American iconic brands, which led to my career and experience at Tommy Hilfiger and having the opportunity to learn from one of the greats and not only work for the brand in New York, but also in Amsterdam as well, which kind of gave me an eye-opening global experience to see the world to also see the rich history and fashion that's out there and also the rich history and culture. So it's been an amazing ride. I'm a lucky boy and I'm looking forward to definitely what's next and how we will continue to see transformation in the fashion arena and the cultural space as well.
it's always interesting to hear for our listeners, you know, how you you know ended up in the path that you are now. Because as you say, there's so many different areas that you can be thrown into and you can pick up all those experiences and apply it to many roles within the fashion retail industry. And I know that you're focusing on menswear at the moment and the topic today is around menswear. And according to your monitor, we've seen that menswear is predicted to grow 2.3% globally by 2020, which we're in now, compared to the 2.2% growth for women's wear. So, 0.1% there is a growth for menswear. So from your perspective, how have we got to a point where men's is outpacing women's in growth? Well, you know, I think a big part of that plays into innovation. I mean, innovation has played a big part of the growth of menswear. I think it's something that we continue to see. I think it also shows the growing importance of attributes. So if you think about it, when when we talked about stretch and men's product, it started actually in women's, in a, in a lot of women's denim, and we saw it slowly creep into men's. But it's so amazing how once it caught on, it didn't stop there. You know, today, the male consumer not only demands stretch, but they want to see wicking. They want to see temperature control. So where brands have really had an opportunity to focus on innovation, on the attributes, and really looking at key core classifications that have always been iconic and drivers in the menswear arena. They just took a a, a vast step at what can we do to enhance those and attributes and innovations have really played a big part on the success there. So if you think about it, it's really created these new incremental drivers that we're seeing really take shape in menswear and utilizing consumer insights like edited, I think have allowed us as retailers to really zero in on where those opportunities lie at the product group level so that we can all win the race. And I think that really shows a testament to where we're seeing men's take that big upswing. So it's interesting. Do you feel that as, you know, obviously working in the menswear space that I guess, do you feel more confident in taking those risks in terms of product innovations versus maybe your women's wear counterparts? Well, I think, I think you have to, you know, I think when I grew up in this industry, it was easy to say hindsight's always 2020 as a merchant could sit down, look at last year's sales with your, with your planner. And if you mapped it out, how you sold it last year, you're going to see the big sales. It's not like that anymore. So the reality is, is that you're lucky if hindsight is 80 or 70% every year, especially in the last four years, we see last year slowly decreasing. And it's not like those drivers that kept the lights on before still aren't doing considerable sales, but you have to be able to look at the market and be able to say what's next. And a part of what's next is being able to take those risks. I think a part of taking those risks obviously is also being smart about it. And I think you've got to be able to really look at not only the data, the facts and figures, but to also, you know, testing is a big part of what's really going to help brands figure out what's next and being able to take those risks and being able to also have the right triggers in place so that when they do see a sales uplift or if they do see consumer demand on these new innovations or incremental drivers that they can actually start running and and, and bring forward great product, great marketing and really draw that consumer demand. A hundred percent, hundred percent. It's interesting because I had that exact same conversation with a friend of mine who's a planner at Zalando and he said the exact same things as, as what you're saying. You have to take those risks. Planning versus last year and looking at just last year's assortment and what you could do better from that is you need to take that much further these days. It's not how it works. So what are you seeing as the biggest cultural impacts on menswear that led us to where we are today? I mean, this is such a huge question, but I'm here for it. So let's do it. I, you know, it, it, it's, you know I, I love men's fashion. I mean, it's, it's really the space that I've grown up in. 
But it's interesting. I think for most people who really are leaders in this space, you have to also be aware of what's happening in women's fashion. But when you particularly look at men's fashion, there are so many trends that really take cues from really historical, significant places that whether you're looking at it in the sports arena or even the music arena. I mean, whether it's, if you think about it in sports, there were the days where you have the old polo matches and that's where the original Oxford shirt came from. Mm -hmm. And then it was taking forward with great historical iconic brands like Brooks Brothers, or even think about the tennis match, which kind of gave birth to the polo shirt and then taking forward with great brands like Lacoste. It, we, we really take so many cues from sport and how that's really drawn its place and history for how we've created some of the iconic product groups that we see today that really drive our business and drive style. And they've, they've remained consistent in the everyday men's wardrobe. I mean, it, it doesn't stop there. I mean, think about it. You've got basketball and football that have played a big part of what we see today in athleisure, or you even see the tracksuit, which is going down the runway in Gucci for very large sums of money out the door. So it's really interesting. I think there's so many influences. You know, a lot of things have happened in regards to those influences in the men's market, but it's interesting to see how sport has played a big foundation of what we see in sportswear today. And I think also we see that transitioning in a big part in athleisure. I I also think that I'm a big music buff. Uh, I I love music. You know, I'm happy to say I grew up in the 80s and 90s because we had really that kind of transformation where you had these great American iconic brands that just continue to grow inherently by even some of the cues that we saw happening in music. If you think about it, you had Grand Puba and Snoop Dogg who rapped about great brands like Ralph Lauren and Tommy Hilfiger, or even having like Run DMC and LL Cool J wearing Adidas tracksuits. It's so cool to see how a lot of these brands gain notoriety from music. And that's just something that is so, it helped kind of gain that credibility in the menswear space. A lot of the success that happens today in menswear really is lifestyle driven. And it's so fun that being able to go back to these historical cues of product and and brands with heritage really allows this new collaborative space to continue to grow, grow, and grow because there's so much history there to to pull from. And and it just allows everybody to color outside the lines and, and keep this industry fun. It reminds me of the Devil Wears Prada moment where um, <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> it was movies. like the blue cerulean. Is that what it was that she referenced? Yeah. That? <laughs> there's probably uh, a lot of men that don't know the history or they do know as well that there's so much historical context to the products that they're wearing. I think a lot of men wouldn't like to admit that they know that movie, but it's one of my favorites. And it's completely true. I mean, there's so much history, even the yellow that I'm wearing in my sweater today, for those who can't see me. there's there's so much history there i think and you know as we start to deep dive into trends in this conversation so many trends come from historical moments and i think that's also what the young gen z consumer is so drawn by especially when we start to look at collaborations i mean you know not to jump ahead but the there's so many connections of dots that it makes me smile because if you are really into fashion and the history and the archives of what built these brands, the road is endless. Yeah. Well, it leads us nicely on to our next question because we have, you know, different types of male customer profiles. And I was trying to put my boyfriend into a bucket and ask him a few questions. (laughs) Love doing that. So, I mean, and how he shops, but it would be good to understand from your point of view too, if you could talk us through the different types of male customer profiles that are out there. 
You know, I actually really love that you guys put this question on there because I think it's so important and more and more brands are starting to deep dive into this. Really, there's three big buckets out there if you think about it. First of all, you've got the fashion follower. He's classic, he's hardworking, he's reliable, probably a bit on the safer side, more discreet, but still loyal. So, you know, moderate income, appreciates price value, dresses very classic and casual in his style choice, prefers brands that he's always shocked to have a trustworthy reputation. And I think this really is that brand loyal consumer. Mm-hmm. But really the biggest portion of this consumer we see in Gen X, right? So probably about 64%. You know, you still get a little bit of Gen Y and Gen Z, probably about 18% respectively. But the biggest pr- proportion of this consumer really is a Gen X consumer. But then in the middle space, you have somebody who's a little bit more like fashion wear. So this is the guy in the middle. He's confident, he's down to earth, he's open-minded, he's fun, he's effortless, entrepreneurial, still cares about brand loyalty, definitely makes a moderate income, but still is willing to take a little bit more risks when it comes to fashion. So I think this is always that that consumer is that I appreciate and I get what I pay for. So he's willing to invest more in a suit. He's willing to invest more in a pair of pants and a shirt because he knows that it will last longer. But this is also that consumer who is brand loyal, but is willing to take risks. So this is a very favorable consumer because he is still reliable. But I think with everything we're seeing out there today, with like Instagram ads and pop-ups, and this really is a consumer that is willing to be drawn in to take risks and even go to a new brand to get his tech chino or his polo shirt or what have you, but still very technically savvy. And I think this is definitely the person who is the iPhone, has a Mac and wants convertibility and technology in his clothes. And then of course, you know, I might put myself in this bucket. You have the fashion purist. So this is definitely probably a little bit more unique, intuitive, strong-minded, that original eclectic, eccentric consumer. This is kind of the influencer type, the person who goes on StockX to get the sneaker, the person who's shopping collabs, the person who wants exclusivity, but still also appreciates heritage because we still see something happening in fashion today where it is about this high low. So you will see, especially in New York, I'm sure you guys see it in London, you'll still see a a person wearing a pair of Gucci slides with vintage Levi jeans and a white t-shirt and they look like a million dollars. You know, I still firmly say a man looks great in a white t-shirt and a pair of jeans as long as it fits him well, you know? So appreciates a good tailor, but this really is that consumer that is also the person that the follower and the aware consumer watch on Instagram. So it's kind of like, you know, from the window outside looking, you're like, I want to be this person. So, and, and this is kind of that consumer that people watch to take those risks. That, so that, I think that's why we see such this growth of the influencer and the creator, because really it's the purist that is probably one of the most desirable consumers because it's the consumer that's not afraid to take risks, but it's also the consumer that people are watching. Mm. My boyfriend's definitely the first one because I asked him how he buys his t-shirts and he said he'd just buy the same Hackett t-shirt but in a different color. <laughs> so, Randy, I'll ask you after the episode to, to share some psychoanalysis <laughs> on him. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with brand loyalty. It sounds like he's, he's brand yeah. loyal, but we'll, we'll yeah. see what we can do to get him a bit more aware. Yeah. I'm sure Hackett are thrilled <laughs> if they're listening to this podcast. So if we think about those purists, And obviously, as you mentioned, you know, brands, they want those purists to be wearing their products. You know, they're the guys that people are looking to for trend and and how menswear is progressing. So what are the biggest trends that you're seeing in menswear right now? 
Well, it's so funny. There, there, there's a lot of big ones. Well, I, as a person who's wearing a yellow sweater today, I'm happy to say color, color, color. Amen to that. I think specifically in these tough times that we're in now. Yeah. It's so great that everybody's still celebrating color and optimism. And we're talking bold color. You know, it really kind of takes itself back to like the 1960s psychedelics, big pop, bold colors. And I think that, that the fact that we continue to see that not only in runways, but through commercial brands and commercial product categories, you know, men are more willing to take risks and wear color. Even if it's in the average t-shirt and shorts, it's fantastic to see that continues to be a trend. But I have to say what we've continued to see year after year, and one of the things that I see is print. And it's so fun to see that print, again, going back to like the 60s, is here to stay and it continues to be a big part of the men's wardrobe. And I I love seeing that. I mean, we are in the middle of summer. So to see the vacation shirt, as I like to call it, the camp collar shirt, think about it. Two years ago, this was considered fashion. Now it has become a men's staple. I call it the vacation shirt because I think everyone's willing to take it out of their closet for summer. But what we start to see is that they're getting bolder and brighter. They used to be cut to white. Now they're more cut to color. They're more saturated. They have that camp color silhouette. And in a lot of cases, if you go to a lot of brands and you look on their websites, you'll see that these have the highest sell-throughs. So they continue to grow. And I I don't think that will outpace. One thing that continues to surprise me is just talking to a friend of mine the other day. Can you believe that you continue to see tie-dye everywhere? Tie-dye everywhere. Insane. Listen, I'm an indigo buff. If you get a chance to ever see my apartment or many of my wardrobe, I love indigo. But it's kind of it's kind of like graduated itself out of just indigo. You see tie-dye color. You even see rules on on Instagram or, or through Mr. Porter or different websites on how to even have your own tie-dye party in the middle of summer. Oh my god. I wouldn't suggest doing it in your living room, but outside that would actually fit <laughs> social distance yeah. activity. But I think What's really cool is that you continue to see that it's developed through commercial tie-dye or even through fashion. So whether it's brands like John Elliott or Le Webe, it's mm-hmm. really, or even if you go to commercial brands, it's really something that continues to grow not only in the male space, but the female space as well. And I think one of the last ones that I love to keep seeing is that sustainability, it's, it's a part of our, our, our norm, right? And it, it, it's not going anywhere. It's not a trend, but I do think when you look at categories like swim, I love the fact that I'm starting to see more of the trends that I just talked to you about in the swim space, but also we're starting to see more sustainable swim happen in both men's and women's. And of course, last but not least, innovation is a must. And that's probably one of the biggest trends that I continue to see is that when it comes to temperature control, wicking, and now I think we will start to see, even in our new normal, people start to dip their toe into antiviral or, you know, and, and it's funny how we now see masks are everywhere. They need to be for now. Let's see how long that lasts as we venture into a possible vaccine. But they are a part of the wardrobe. And funny enough, I saw a friend of mine on the street the other day pattern mixing his mask with his shorts. So oh, wow. <laughs> becoming a part of the fashion wardrobe. So there's a lot there. But these are, these are all relevant things that I think we see shaping today. I I think one of the last trends I love to dive into is just the topic of wellness. Wellness is something we continue to see growing in menswear today. And I I love that, Uh, you know, especially in the pandemic that we're in now, it's not just trends about fashion, it's trends about the mind, body, and the soul. So whether it be skincare or whether it be apps like Calm, 
it is such a trend today to really think about what makes you look good and feel good in the whole menswear space. And wellness is something I think we will continue mm-hmm. to see a big trend that we'll be talking about in months to come. Yeah. Well, I'm sure our listeners will be will be writing all these down because that's quite a good list there of things I that trending. I feel like tie-dye is such an interesting one, especially when I'm sure a lot of retailers backed tie-dye heavily for the festival season and then obviously festival season never happening. But that trend really continued with strength behind it. And the fact that we've seen that trend, you know, across multiple different product categories. You know, you'll go and see silk slip dresses that are tie-dyed now, like the brand like Danny Joe. You know, it's it's amazing how far that that trend has has spread. Yeah. What you were mentioning about vacation shirts as well, that that was kind of a trend before and then has become a bit more of a stable piece within collections. The same with streetwear. Streetwear was once considered a trend and it's now a part of core lines. So it'd be great to understand from your perspective, how has this sector maintained its popularity, especially in the midst of a, of a pandemic? You know, I, I love this topic because really streetwear and street style used to be looked at as a negative connotation when in fact it is really the fairy formula that made a lot of iconic brands, household names. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, streetwear really is about attitude. It's about the size of the garment, the styling, or even the play on silhouette. So a lot of the roots that we see in streetwear or street style go back to classic sportswear. So a lot of the, the items that I talked about earlier in our conversation, whether it be the Oxford shirt or the polo or, or the chino, they are just like really cool new modern updates. And they really do play into silhouette. They really do play into attitude. And it's so really fun to see people play outside of the lines. I think that's why not only is it about, you know, streetwear brands, it's the styling of it, but it's also kind of that mix with vintage. So I think that's really has inspired this to become a lasting trend. I think importantly enough too, it's about the codes. And I think what the juxtaposition you see where you take things that have always been inherently a part of classic sportswear, like think about it, you now see corduroy, which is always something that you would see in your granddad's suit or yeah. pair of pants. And now you see it in a really cool open silhouette short. Mm-hmm. Or think about taking something like a Hawaiian or psychedelic print from the 60s or 70s that you normally would see in a shirt or swim trunks. And now you see it in a tailored suit done by a lot of the luxury brands. So really it's also about kind of that twist on the codes that you see. And, and I think making those daring twists I really kind of kept streetwear solid. And I, I, and I think, of course, a big part of it obviously goes back to that purest consumer that we talked about earlier that's willing to take those risks and the great collaborations that we continue to see be a part of the formula of a lot of brands out there. I mean, the collabs really allow brands to step and color outside of the lines, mm-hmm. to break rules, to kind of lean in on each other's techniques and history and it is about that history and authenticity, which really has consumers coming back for more. So to see great brands with that history and that authenticity work with people that are creating that element of surprise really kind of creates this exclusive product that is done at very small runs and draws the consumer in, amplifies the resale market, but really, fondly enough, starts to trickle down to the rest of our product lines and influence some of the best sellers that we see perhaps six months later or the next season. Mm -hmm. So going back to the iconic scene from Devil Wears Prada, it really is this trickle-down effect from cerulean blue 
or from a cool new speaker collaboration that goes to an iconic best-selling speaker that you might find in the best-selling space of a well-known brand. Totally. They're so iconic, these streetwear brands. But what ones should retailers and consumers be really looking to right now and why? And, and who do you think is kind of doing it well and really staying ahead of the curve in terms of across legacy and novel brands? Well, you know, it's so funny. I love that you said legacy and novel. And novel, for lack of better words, I think we still see a lot of new kids on the block that have been around for a little while, but yeah. continue to do well, especially also in the pandemic. I mean, Kith is a great example continues yeah. to grow. Ronnie is it has such an amazing eye and passion for product and storytelling and an amazing team works there. And, and they continue to not only create an experience online, but their stores are fun as well. So whether it's a store in New York or LA, and I hear he's opening in Tokyo soon, you continue to see what they do is a big part of this market, whether it's their private label product or whether it's through collaborations as well. I, I'm a fan of also... Ami Leon Dor, which is also a, a great kind of streetwear brand that kind of plays on those codes that I talked about earlier, where really it is about this great, iconic, historical sportswear codes that are done in new ways, whether it's like prints or taking a beautiful sweater and, and doing a, an amazing kind of like photo montage in Tarja of like Mykonos. I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's just so fun to pair that back with like an open pair of like corduroy shorts and you know, and also another brand that plays in that collapse space and continues to do well. I love when you said legacy, because I think a part of that legacy is seeing brands come to life like Champion, who mm-hmm. continue to play in and outside the box, great collaborations, whether it be with Todd Snyder in their own space. Really, if you think of Champion, you think of that iconic American sweatshirt and the heritage that goes along with that. So, so fun to see Stussy you know, one of the great skate brands and what they recently did with Kim Jones, who I'm a big fan of. So you really do start to see that balance between legacy and new school. And speaking of Kim, I think Kim is doing an amazing job of taking what we consider to be luxury. And that's why I said there's no rule of what you can say what streetwear is, because whether it's the collaboration with Stussy or what he recently did with Air Jordans or you know, recently the show, which was one of my favorite shows with the Ghanaian artist Ama Okobafo, beautiful show, where now even it's not about collaboration just with products, it's about collaboration through art. Hmm. And you mentioned a bit about some of the collaborations and sneakers and like Dior drinks and with Jordans. And I know you have an impressive sneaker collection yourself, Randy. And Who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you. I mean, I'm impressed by it. And I think it'd be great to hear more from you on the importance of the sneaker market because that has just been going through the roof as well during this pandemic. No, absolutely. Listen, guilty as charged, my right hand, I am a sneaker head. I totally am. I am the guy who looks on all the sneaker apps, the recent <laughs> markets. I'm embarrassed to say how many sneakers I have and guess what? They're all in their boxes. Yes. <laughs> have you got Polaroids on the outside of the boxes? So you I, will, I will not answer that question in fear that it will incriminate me. Amazing. But, but, you know, I think I'm in present company. The sneaker market is on fire. It's such a fun market. It is a great part of the staple. I think what was really cool to see in the last five years, or probably even more, is that even the resurgence of Stan Smith and the white sneaker coming back and Adidas Originals, and then that kind of transformed in these great collaborations that you see with Nike 
it's on fire. And it all goes back to what I talked about, that recipe of authenticity and heritage. These are brands that have rich heritage that they draw in from, and now they are coloring out of the outside of the lines with some of the most coveted collaborations that you see, some of which I'm proud to have, but it's not easy to get. And, you know, one of my favorite collaborations last year, one of my favorite brands is Sakai. And to see them do one of the most celebrated collaborations with Nike last year, which is still, if you go on StockX, which I'm a big StockX fan, by the way, and I'll yeah. talk about them in a minute, it's still hard to get. So you, mm-hmm. and, and, and one would have thought that in the pandemic, we would have saw a downturn in the resale market just because with all the uncertainty of COVID and the virus, but that could be the pure opposite. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes back to just how strong that market is and how it really ties into heritage. I have to go back to Jordans as a kid who wore Air Jordans and to still see them such a part of sneaker collaborations and the sneaker releases that continue to happen. Jordans are on fire. And if you have not seen The Last Dance, the documentary on Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, and it, it, it's amazing. And it really brings you back to that nostalgia and it hasn't gone anywhere. And a yeah. lot of the consumers weren't even born when when the Chicago Bulls were winning the championship and, and, and Jordan was at the top of this game. So I love that nostalgia. I love the history. I draw into it. It's fun to also discover new brands who are working mm-hmm. on collaborations through sneakers. I, I, but I, I'm a fan of the story of it. And I, and, I, and I have to say, sneakers are like works of art. I personally draw a lot of inspiration when it comes to color when I look at sneaker collabs every season. And I think that you can find inspiration in just about anything, but for sure, the sneaker space is a fun one to talk about and a fun one to continue to watch. So what's at the top of your shopping list when it comes to sneakers? Oh man, I I, I hate to say it because I don't want the competition, but you know, (laughs) no, like I said, I I think, I think the the Jordan collabs continue for me to be on fire. I mean, what I love how everything goes back to the iconic shape. There's a release coming out early August, which kind of goes back to the iconic red, white, and black, Mm. but a little bit of like a crocodile imprint embossing in the leather that I think is fire. So I, 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 I love those. I think it was fun to see like next to Sakai, the Travis Scott release, the first and the second one were coveted. There's, there's so many out there, but I think what Jordan is doing, it, it's fire, it, it's authenticity, it's fun. It allows people to, to, to step in and play in that arena and step out. And, and it continues. If, if you follow it, guys, sells out. And, it, and it's, mm-hmm. it's fun to see something with that type of history and nostalgia continues to do well years later. And I think for years to come. Definitely. I feel like The Last Dance was incredible and the momentum that that has probably even just amplified. I mean, it was already on fire. So it, taking, to the, taking it to that next level. So Randy, tell us a little bit more about the different strategies that brands have to you know, adapt to appeal to the menswear consumer. I know we've spoken a lot about collaborations, but anything you can talk us through on that? Yeah, I think definitely one of the biggest strategies that we will see play out will be the digital omni-channel experience, Mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, think about it. We, stores are reopening, which is fantastic. We need that, of course, you know, falling under the safe measures that we put out there for the pandemic. But where the consumer has not been able to shop, we've seen a huge upswing throughout the entire market when it comes to e-commerce. And it's even now more important that what we see online echoes the experience that a consumer would be able to see if they would go to a store experience. So, you know, digital and innovation, I think will continue to play an important part. 
This is also really a great space for consumer inside platforms like Edited to play in because where the consumer cannot shop, this gives an opportunity to create you know, store trackers where different, not only consumers, but also people who are working in the retail space or the fashion space can utilize a tracker to see what stores look like all across the world because we're not able to do that in our current normal. You know, digital is really fundamental to consolidate a brand's perception in the eye of the consumer. And this new approach will require brands to move towards a rapid organizational, cultural, and technical revolution. It's true. I think this will also open us up to a future of creativity and experimentation to meet the needs of a transformative consumer, this consumer that is changing every day. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's important that we continue to watch very closely at what are the demands of the consumer. What, what was our way of working before COVID-19 is changed. And I think where we will all win in this race is to keep an eye on change, to see what hasn't changed, but to keep an eye on this transformative consumer and to really, really fundamentally focus on this digital omni-channel experience. Mm-hmm. And it, it also, I think, in a way makes our industry fun. It gives us an opportunity yeah. to also kind of play in the lines of what you're starting to see happen, even with fashion shows. I mean, we, we are now in a space where the, our computers and our phones are the window to the world. So the experience is so important, and it's so important that we're giving that to the consumers through every step in the world of fashion, specifically yeah. also in menswear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying earlier about how online data has become more important during all these travel bans and store closures, we've been busier than ever at Edited. I mean, we talked a lot about in the previous podcast, so a little plug there for the previous one. But it's interesting what you said earlier at the beginning of the podcast about women's wear and how that filters into or it has previously within menswear and what you're talking about e-commerce and maybe how this is going to be changing a lot for how customers interact with brands. But with women's wear, we've seen that move faster and faster with retailers dropping hundreds of thousands of new products each week. From your perspective, is menswear keeping pace and how can it get to the same level of women's wear? Well, you know, I think when you look at the women's space, women's has always had more fashion, more product groups. Uh, I mean, it's always been more dynamic in that effect, just from the yeah. sheer rate of fashion sales, but also the just sheer amount of categories. And I think a, a perfect example of that, look today at what the rate at which women sell dresses. They're easy. They're part of one of the biggest growing fashion product groups that you see in the women's space. Mm-hmm. Menswear doesn't have that. And if I even think of where we start to see even more happening in the non-apparel space or accessories, like these are big out the door turning product groups that we start to and continue to see be a driver in women's wear and something that is a challenge for men's wear. And, and, and I say challenge very loosely because it, I, I do think that we'll start to see that, especially in that technical space, that there'll be opportunity for more growth in the non-apparel or accessories arena. But when you look at just the sheer amount of categories and, and how some of those fashion product groups turn in women's wear, it's not a surprise to hear those numbers. Mm-hmm. In terms of influencers in the men's space, so I know in women's wear, you know, we have 
the Kardashians. I mean, you can't get away <laughs> from them. But we also have... Obviously, Are you saying you watch the Kardashians? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear they're continuing to film the, the oh, season now that uh, things have loosened up. But obviously we have like, you know, superstar influencers in the women's wear space. So what does this look like in men's? You know, we've mentioned sports and, and the importance there, but you could talk to us about that. Yeah, I, I, there's so many out there. I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Lucas Sabat, who influencer, actor, man of style. I mean, I've been following this this kid, not a kid anymore, since he was like 18. And everything he puts on just looks effortless. And that's just a part of always the space in which I like to dress. I mean, you know, you, you should... I like that he takes risks, but it never looks like he's trying too hard. But he definitely takes risks. I mean, the kid looks amazing and cool and everything. Probably one of my favorite male influencer icons or just like kind of male fashion icons in general. I mean, I love the because style. They all, they all dress so well now. Like kids these days, they just dress like they're not going through those awkward phases that I went through. <laughs> definitely not. But not just kids, Diana. We dress good too. <laughs> 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 but I, I, I also, you know, one of the, I would say one of the other, there's, there's this guy, his name's Phil Cohen. If you don't follow him, it's, uh, I think his Instagram's the Pac-Man82, it is, who I think is kind of like your not typical influencer because he actually does what I used to do, which is this like cool lay down shots of where like your daily outfits, so it's something I used to do in one of my old roles where, you know, you're styling kind of like lay downs and outfits. And it's actually a lot of fun to watch because he's even kind of taking it not only like your daily outfit, but like, you know, pairing it back to like what your technical accessory is. And it's really fun to see that not every influencer needs to obviously be on the human body. So it's fun to see some people kind of play outside of that normal arena. I think when it comes to athletes, listen, I'm a huge fan of LeBron James. I mean, what's not to love? Yeah. He, he's a star. And it's so fun to see him kind of come into his own style year after year. He's a boss. He looks good at everything. And again, going back to hot sneaker collaborations and seeing what he's been doing with Nike and continuing to bring strength and power to to the sneaker arena and of course i'm a james harden fan as well from the houston rockets he looks yeah. great wears color takes things back to tailored you know i thought i think before we, we 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 saw this transition into covid we were starting to see a lot more tailored happening in the market and it's so fun to see people still appreciate that uh, it's nothing better when you see a suit that fits to the nines and for someone who can also be that tall and pull off color like him you know, I'm jealous. <laughs> also, so, he's so charitable, isn't he, as well, and supporting people in different communities. So, I, yeah, I find him quite influential as well. But um, it'd be good to understand, I guess, when they're going to those products and the, the suit and the navy suit that you talked about earlier, when men are shopping, it'd be good to understand what are the key differences between men's shopping habits and women's because I was asking my boyfriend again about this and he said he just goes to the sales sections of, of the brands that he loves <laughs> he's very driven <laughs> by value or by his avios points <laughs> and where he can get more points <laughs> I need to interview your boyfriend <laughs> I, I think there's more I've locked him up in the other room <laughs> next podcast but uh listen everyone loves sale but I think the reality still is, is that there still is an opportunity for new incremental drivers in the marketplace as well as there is for fashion. I think what's interesting is where it probably was more different be- 
before COVID-19 and for the lockdowns, I think we're probably going to start to see it become a lot similar toward men's and women's. Think about how much we are on our phones and our computers these days, specifically our phones. I thought what was really interesting, this is where I become a nerd to the process, it's like if you look at Instagram ads, we all get them, social media ads. If you click on a lot of the brands that send you ads and you see that item that they send you, and then you go onto that actual ad and then you look at the availability of that product, in a lot of cases, you will see that it is either sold through, broken in sizes, or sold out. Mm-hmm. It is a formula that we are starting to see work. And I've noticed that. Yeah. And I think that we're starting to see, we're going to start to see a lot of male and female consumers are going to have equal habits when it comes to that. I think I'm hopeful that that will also give us an opportunity to see more of that fashion aware and that fashion purist consumer draw more in to brands where they're, where they're willing to try new product categories. And that's why marketing next to great product is such a fundamental, important piece of the pie when you're trying to attract not only the male consumer, but all consumers, because a big part of men's product is also bought by the female consumer or their partners like Diana, um, <laughs> if he's open to that. So I, I think that we will, I think we'll start to see that that trend will be very similar. I think, but I, I, one of the places where I think men's will continue to drive is in this space of innovation and attributing. And I think where just zeroing in on clear new product opportunities that are fundamental modern versions of the classics that used to drive our business. So I think we'll start to see growth in the tech arena which I'm sure we'll talk about further in the, in the podcast, but there's, there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think we'll start to see that where people are shopping less, they're shopping more. Absolutely. And in terms of, obviously we've just spoken about, you know, how that customer journey is maybe changing and the importance of Instagram ads, but how important is brand loyalty to the male consumer? Because from when you were talking about those three profiles earlier, it seemed very important to number one and number two. So yeah, what are your thoughts there? Listen, I think brand loyalty is super important. Like I said, to the fashion follower, it is epically important because that is your historical consumer. But brand loyalty, you don't see necessarily a lot of the male consumers wearing one brand head to toe like you used to. But when it comes to specific products that he knows and he loves, there is big opportunity for brands to get those new products in front of the male consumer, whether that be the fashion aware or the fashion purist. So there is still market share to be had. And again, it goes, it comes back to great product and great marketing. So if we talk about a lot of those pop-up ads that we see, I even find myself getting drawn into them, mm-hmm. whether it's even trying like a new gym short or a new t-shirt or a new pair of sneakers. I think even now, kind of while we're in this kind of lockdown mode or this stay at home mode where we're not out as much as we used to, there's a kind of this little open crack for brands to step in there to really draw in on that fashion aware and that fashion purist consumer and get them to try something new. And if they love it, we all know, and I'm the same way. If I love a pair of pants and I know how they fit, that's my denim brand for the foreseeable future. Or that, and, and, and I'm not your average consumer, but I definitely think that we all get drawn in on things based on what brands are telling us about what makes their product so great. And they always say you got two, two to five seconds to capture a consumer. Even more realistic for how fast that we all click through. Yeah, our- I love that stat. Two to five seconds. I'll be conscious yeah. of it next time. So 
Randy, we've spoken a lot about those heritage products and obviously moving them forward. So what are the modern day essentials in the men's wardrobe? Kind of what key items are critical to any men's apparel business today that they need to have covered? I think this is a really important question because I think that what we've seen recently and we will continue to see is that technical versions of these great menswear classics are continue to be on the rise. And I kind of call them tech classics. So if you think about it, Lululemon was one of the trailblazers here, but it's also iconic things that we've all always seen kind of in sport product and going back to that whole analogy that I brought up earlier about uh, sport being such a fundamental part of not only menswear history, but where it's going. I mean, even now in our current normal, we are in a moment of comfort. And in many cases, everybody's dressed up from the waist up and then from the <laughs> waist down, they're probably wearing gym shorts or Lululemon, but so, or, or, or a, a, another technical version of a brand. And a, a lot of brands are starting to play in this arena. And I think when you look at the consumer insights and you look at the sellout data, there's starting to be a big return on investment here. So when you start to see some of the brands that are doing extremely well or held their heads above water, specifically during the current pandemic, it really kind of ties back to this notion of technical version of Mm -hmm. everyday classics. So, you know, it's the polo, it's the chino, it's the, the, the chino short. So think about great tech fabrications that also will kind of lend its way to this whole idea of convertibility. And I think I'm definitely the type of person where I can't wait to trade in my iPhone 10 for the new iPhone 12s. And I want to be able to know that if I'm buying a new pair of gym shorts, that they look clean enough that I can wear them all day, but they also work well enough that I can work out in them. And then I can use all my technical AirPods and iPhone and my credit card and run in and run out. So it's all about this aspect of ease. So that doesn't mean that fashion is going anywhere. That doesn't mean that the classic staples are going anywhere. But what's really key is these new modern day essentials, which I call tech essentials that are going to become a big part of the incremental fabric of, I think, men's sportswear, not only today, but for years to come. Mm, we're all going to be wearing activewear to work when we go back, I bet. <laughs> we are, but it'll look like sportswear, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that what I, what I do love about what you just said, Diane, is I think there's a threshold to it. I think we, mm-hmm. the same way that we saw casual sportswear and fashion sportswear, we will see the casual side of tech and we will see the fashionable side of tech. And I mean, you know, look at brands like Stone Island, who a jacket is not only a technological advancement, but it's also a storytelling moment in every piece. So I I think that there is this aspect of functionality meets storytelling meets technology meets fashion. And you mentioned earlier about how menswear was later to the game with stretch in jeans, which was already happening within women's wear. So it'd be great to hear what the untapped opportunities are for menswear. Yes, I think that men's may have been behind the curve in stretch and denim, but they're completely ahead of the curve when you see the new attributes that are taking shape on the market. So like I said, wicking, wrinkle-free, which has been around forever, but is, is really making a, an uptick in the market or even temperature control, which I started to notice probably about two years ago. And you're starting to slowly but surely with brands that started with it are growing in that space. I think this is partly connected to the growth of athleisure, obviously, which is moving into sportswear arena and the tech classics and modern essentials like we talked about. I think there is and will be continued growth at the product group level, and we need to 
watch that closely because everything is about return on investment. That doesn't mean that most brands have to put the kitchen sink of attributes and innovation in every product group. It really is about what is the consumer demand based on the product groups that are out there. And I think that's where consumer insights plays a really big part of that. I think that research, again, it looks forward. It's not a part of hindsight because these are new things that are happening. I think it, it, it really kind of echoes the need to kind of look outside of your comfort zone. I think a lot of these new attributes that we see happening sometimes happen in places that you don't normally think to look, like the outdoor market, which plays in these groups, or the sport market. A lot of the things that we see sometimes grow in menswear are not always in the typical places that you're used to looking. So it's a different science and it's a different way and looking at those untapped opportunities. But once you have the opportunities, it's about like, how do you then capture the consumer? So great product, great marketing, testing opportunities, and being able to watch that grow and pace and making sure that you're, you're really getting the bang for your buck where you're putting those attributes at the product level. Definitely. I love how you broke that down at the end. I feel like that's a really great way for our listeners to really understand what they need to be considering and to keep pace in the modern day with retail. You know, it's, it is a struggle out there and you have to look forward and embrace new sources of data. If we take it back to kind of historical ways of looking to trend, we know that that was obviously fashion shows and, and the runway. So the future of fashion shows has, has been hotly debated especially as more brands move towards virtual shows instead. So do you think this is where the industry is heading and and will physical shows be obsolete? It's interesting. I mean, this has been like a really hot topic over the last few weeks. I have to say, I, number one, I'm so impressed by what I have seen specifically in the men's shows that happened in the past two or three weeks with what brands have done coming out of the gate in light of not being able to have physical shows to the same breath that we were able to have before. You know, I mentioned what Dior did, uh, you know, also looking at Prada, or even, I mean, if you haven't seen the Valentino show, I mean, it's just like a feast for the eyes. So I I think it's definitely, you know, if you're bored on a Friday, you can kind of queue it up on your TV and watch all the shows. And it's, it's as good as a Netflix series. So it's actually fun to see the creativity. I think that goes back to what we talked about with this kind of digital Omni experience. So I do think there's something we can learn from that. Mm-hmm. But then when I look at brands like Jacquemet, which did that beautiful show outside yeah. of Paris, I mean, I, I was blown away. It was social distance, beautiful runway, very on-brand, breathtaking clothes, and just an example of still the beauty of the physical experience. So, I mean, I think some, somehow the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Because I do love that consumers who aren't able to go to these shows are able to experience them. And that bringing that experience to the outside audience just kind of adds to the romance and the beauty of what makes fashion so fun. And one of the reasons that I'm in, I mean, you know, this is an industry that makes my heart beat. I'm so passionate about it. And when I see new things happening and, and, I, when, and I see just how agile our industry has been in light of some of the challenges that we have and the isolation that we have, it's great to utilize that to bring forth new ways to kind of shape the way that we did things. So I, I do I do some sort of like to kind of to bring it to the end. I, I think the truth really is somewhere in the middle. I don't think we'll see physical shows go away. But I do think that hopefully we will learn from what we saw happen with some of the 
non-physical videos and, and, and photo shoots and, and opportunities and see that become an experience that we can kind of draw from. And listen, it becomes assets that brands can use down the road. I mean, and, and listen, we're all talking about it. So that's also what makes it cool. Yeah, I can't believe. So this is actually, we have one general final question, Randy, and I can't believe this is the last one because it's been so insightful. But what is the one thing that you'd like our listeners to take away from this episode? I think the one thing to take away from is that we have to keep the passion and fire for what fashion is and what it will become after the current pandemic that we're in. I I think that this is a moment of transformation. And I think to see how agile and creative the creative and fashion space has been Mm-hmm. As we are all separated and away from each other, I mean, the word Zoom is the norm. Uh, the word podcast is a part of your everyday formula. We are more into sharing what we love when it comes to music, when it comes to film, when it comes to art. We're now in a moment where we're sharing more and we're probably now more connected than ever. So the one thing I want everyone to take away from it is let's continue to drive that and use it towards a positive transformation in our industry, a positive transformation in fashion and a positive upswing in menswear. Beautiful. Love, I love it, Randy, how you've just closed that off. But thank you so much for thank joining us. It was lovely having you. It was lovely being here. Thanks, guys. You were so kind. <laughs> <laughs> now you did it. <laughs> we made it. I don't think we've sweated too much. Well, <laughs> thank yeah, you thank so you. much. All right. Fantastic. Talk soon, guys. As a listener of ours, we are here to support you as the retail industry enters a new era. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything they can to support you. For all our listeners, ensure you are subscribed to the Insider Briefing. Sign up at edited.com, where we'll be keeping you all updated on the latest news and strategies. Thank you for listening to Unedited. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Randy, please make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with future episodes. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, then please tell your friends or family about us. And if you have any further questions, you can get in touch at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore HQ. Bye. Bye.